Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. All right, I'm going to read the Word. If you would stand and join me in doing that. Uh, we have the, the, Alex is at a conference this weekend. We have the gift of Matt Trexler, and Matt's been with us before, and we're so grateful for that, um, Matt. So... Uh, I'm reading from Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, a vision of Joshua, the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who, were, those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Put them a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave the... It's inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen, and may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Um, my name is Matt Trexler. I'm the RUF college pastor at UCLA. I basically do exactly what Alex Wallington does, just at a better school. So, you know, so well, uh, I know I can't say that and then USC fell out of the playoffs. So no, I can say that. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, but this is Christmas season, right? This is Advent. We are working through um, these prophecies of the coming Messiah as we await the birth of Jesus. And we come to a really weird passage, a really weird book this morning, Zechariah, a lot of weird stuff in it. Uh, Satan shows up, a stone with seven eyes. So it's got all the Christmas vibes you could ever want, all the holiday cheer. But actually, this passage comes with a lot of good news. So before we kind of dive into it, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come and we can celebrate the birth of the Savior, your Son, our Lord. Lord, I pray in His name that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would hear the good news afresh, that we would hear it, even though we may know it, we would hear it again, and that, Lord, you would impress it upon our hearts, and that we would leave this place this morning worshiping your Son, Jesus, trusting in Him, loving Him, and showing our neighbors the grace that you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a pastor, one of my favorite things is weddings. I love weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. I've done my sister's wedding. I've done best friend's weddings. I do a lot of my college students' weddings when they get married. And I, um, it's like my pastoral side hustle, right? Like I love doing weddings, you know, get some money on the side. 
But there was this one wedding in particular, a few years ago, this couple from our church uh, asked if I would do their wedding in downtown LA at this really fancy venue at Redbird, and it was one of those weddings where everyone wore like tuxedos and the guys wore cummerbums, cummerbunds, whatever those are, obviously you don't normally dress fancy, um, and it was one of those kinds of weddings. And I was running some errands before the wedding, I hadn't changed yet, so I said, I'll just change at the wedding itself, which is probably a bad idea, I'll get there a little early, I kind of threw everything I needed into a bag, which is terrible, and right, then drove over to downtown LA, like Maseratis are pulling up, like all this kind of thing, and I go into the bathroom stall to change, and I realize to my horror that I had grabbed one brown shoe and one black shoe, uh, and I had grabbed the wrong pair of pants, the ones that had not yet been hemmed, and they, they came all the way up to right here, so like I didn't even touch my shoe, and I was like, I look like a clown. Like I'm the one who's going to be officiating this wedding. I'm like spiraling in anxiety. I'm texting my friend. Thankfully, they were able to bring a pair of black shoes. I was going to literally throw dirt on the black shoe to try to make it look brown. <laughs> it was not working. Um, and then some pair of pants as well. But why did I have so much anxiety? Because how you dress for certain occasions really matters, right? You don't show up to the Oscars wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops, right? You have to dress for the right occasion. Clothes are really important in our culture, and they were really important back then, too. They can determine who is in and who is out. And in this passage of Scripture, we're presented with a strange vision involving clothes. Someone is wearing something that makes them stand out in a bad way. So let me set the scene. You've got the high priest Joshua. And once a year, he would have to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and he would need to make atonement for the people's sins on the Day of Atonement. And it was a week-long ritual to prepare for this. He had to be clean. He had to go through all these different ceremonies. It would be like a surgeon who has to wash his hands and sanitize before the surgery. He can't show up to an open-heart surgery with Cheeto dust on his fingertips, right? You've got to be clean. And in this vision, and it's a vision, he's standing before God and his robes are filthy. I'm not talking like a mustard stain. I'm talking like someone took like a porta potty from Coachella, right? Like, I'm just like, I guess, just sorry for that image. But it's this revolting, right, disgusting thing, and he's covered in it. And we're going to see, right, that it's symbolic for the people's sins before God. Joshua represents them. Joshua represents the people of Israel and the people of God. He is clothed, right, in their sin and their failure. That's the setting for this passage. So, what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage and I want to look at three things. I want to look at the accuser, I want to look at the garments, and I want to look at the Messiah. The accuser, the garments, and the Messiah. But first, the accuser. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So now we're kind of in this courtroom type scene. God is the judge, Joshua is the defendant, and Satan is the chief prosecutor, the accuser. But Maybe some of us hear the word Satan. Maybe some of us grew up in the church. We're used to it. Other of us are like, Satan? Really? Like, y'all believe in Satan? Like, Vecna from Stranger Things? Like, y'all believe in that? Like, the guy with the horns and the pitchfork and the red spandex pants? Like, that guy? Really? But that's a cartoonish version. But he's actually real. He's a true, malevolent, spiritual figure. Scripture says he's our enemy. I don't know if you remember the scene from the Oscars this past year, right, where Will Smith does the pursuit of slappiness, right? And um, after, 
Afterwards, he gets up and he's giving his acceptance speech for best actor. And he's, he's very, it's a very emotional speech. And he says, you know, during intermission, Denzel Washington came up to me and said this. He said, be careful, Will, because it's when you're at your highest moment that the devil's waiting for you. And everyone in the audience was like, <gasps> right? You just mentioned the devil's name on live television in, on Hollywood Boulevard. Like, really? Like, modern people don't do that, right? And we might say, oh, he's a metaphor or he's symbolic. No. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Peter says he's a roaring lion seeking people to devour. So the Bible would go even further than Will Smith and Denzel Washington and say that the devil's also waiting for you at your lowest moments. And he's also waiting for you at your most mundane moments. And it's in this passage that he's standing before Joshua and he's accusing him. Hebrew, the Hebrew word for Satan, the Satan, is accuser. Have you ever felt accused? Maybe there have been even those internal accusations in your own soul. I mean, how can you show up at church this morning after you yelled at your kids? You're a fraud. You're a fake. You, you yelled at your wife. You yelled at your husband. You don't really believe this stuff. You're a fake. God's love isn't for you. You see, for the Christian, Satan would love for you to dwell on your failures. No hope, no grace for you. You've maxed out God's grace like a credit card, right? And he tells partial truths. We are sinners. We have sinned before God. But he lies. He says, there's no hope for you, right? The early church fathers gave the name splitter to Satan because he seeks to split you from your hope in Christ and to split us from each other. But it can also take the form these accusations of what other people have even said over us in our life. You'll never make it. You'll always be a disappointment. You never do the right thing. You're just like your father. You're, you, no one wants to be around you. Some of those are the voices of people in our lives. Some of those are the voices in our own souls. You know, if you talked to yourself, if you talked to other people the way that you talk to yourself, you probably wouldn't have any friends, right? We, there's this very harsh way that we even talk to our own hearts. And, these, and the psalmist says it's like the voices from the pit. Where do these voices come from? Well, they're not the voice of God. But oh, what power they have, don't they? Some of us do believe it's the voice of God. Some of us believe that that's actually what God is like towards us. That He is constantly accusing us. That He's always angry at us. That He's the great accuser or the great criticizer. Is that what God is like? My pastor growing up, Sinclair Ferguson, said that who you are and the way you live reflects who you think God is and what kind of character you believe He has. The voice of God does speak in this passage but it does not side with the accuser. This is the second point, which is the garments. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. God sees Joshua covered in his filth, and God rebukes not Joshua, 
But Satan, Satan, shut your face, right? Be quiet. Shut up. These are my people, and I will make them clean. God doesn't even say to Joshua, go home, Joshua, take a shower, clean yourself up, we'll try again tomorrow. He doesn't say, you know, if your good works outweigh your bad, then you can come back to me and we'll talk. He doesn't even say, you know, Joshua, don't listen to Satan. Just tell yourself that you're beautiful and that you're good and the right kind of person and just start to believe it. Like, he doesn't even say that. He just intervenes. He just intervenes in an act of unprovoked grace. We try to cover our guilt with self-affirmation and virtue, but God has to be the one to clean us. And the angel says to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments, and God removes the filth. It's a beautiful picture of forgiveness. Is that how you view the character of God? Now, a lot of us may not think that God is angry all the time. We might have learned differently. But we do think of God always slightly just a little bit disappointed, almost at a distance, arms folded, kind of looking down at us. Is that your view of God? Do you always think that he's a little upset with you, a little disappointed? Don't forget, God so loved the world. God hates nothing that he has made. Psalm 103, he will not constantly accuse. He does not keep his anger forever. He's not saying, I hate sinners. Jesus did not go to the cross and be like, I hate dying for sinners. It would be so much easier just to judge them. Right? What did he actually say in John 3? He says, the Son of Man came not to judge but to save. Yes, he will, he will be a judge. Yes, he is the judge. But you know what gets him up in the morning? Saving sinners. Saving people like you and me. That's his MO. That's what he loves. That is his heart. When you call him Savior, you call him by his name. That is who he is. You see, we know people in our lives who are always looking for reasons to be angry, right? You know those people, right? Go to Twitter. Like, if Bama makes the playoffs, people are going to be angry, right? Like, you're going to find a ton of anger on Twitter today, right? People are looking for reasons to be angry, but that's not what God is like. God is not looking for ways to be angry at us. In fact, the scripture says he's looking for excuses to be gracious to us. He longs to be gracious. He loves to give. He loves to forgive. I've been meditating on this verse in Luke 12, 32 that Jesus tells his disciples. He says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You meditated on that? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not sell you the kingdom. Not begrudgingly give it to you who've earned it. Not if you've played it and begged enough. But it is your Father's joy to give you the kingdom. Like a father giving a present to his child and watching them open it up and being filled with delight. That is what God is like to give you eternal life. That is what he's like. Why do we have such a hard time believing this, right? We have to think, oh, have I surrendered enough? Have I done enough? Have I pleaded enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I been loving enough to get the kingdom? No, you haven't. It is your Father's good pleasure to give it out of grace, out of the sheer abundance of His mercy and love. But why do we have such a hard time believing this? Like, we can hear this and we think, oh, that is so nice. And I walk out of here fearing that, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that God is not upset with me? Why does it go from one ear and out the other? I think part of it might be our guilt. Guilt runs deep. And a lot of shame runs deep in our hearts. We know that we've done sinful things. We know that we haven't even done good things. 
We haven't been the son or daughter that we want to be. We haven't been the husband or wife that we want to be. We haven't been the mother or father that we want to be. And we know that we haven't been the servant of God that we want to be. And so this like guilt, like battery acid, right, just like corrodes our soul. It gets down in front and it just eats us away from the inside out. Or we try to appease our guilt in different ways. If I can just get really super religious and join like 15 Bible studies, right, or I busy myself or just involve myself in all these self-atonement strategies so that I can pay the final my life. Can I just pay the final my life and go home? The gospel says you are forgiven. You are for your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You are clean. God has wiped your slate clean. But forgiveness, while good, is actually not enough. Let's go back to that wedding image. Let's say that you're going to that fancy, bougie wedding, right? And you've got, this, you've got your tuxedo and your cummerbunds. You've got your fancy dress and you're walking up to the wedding and you trip, fall into a mud puddle Oh, you're like, what am I going to do? Your friend comes up, right? It's trying to rub it off. It's not working. They help you go to the bathroom and strip down from your clothes and all this kind of thing. Are you now ready to go to the wedding? They, they removed the filthy garments. Are you ready to go to the wedding? No, you're, you're naked. Sorry for the image, right? But that's not enough. You need to be clothed in clean garments as well. You need something else. And you see, God doesn't just remove what's filthy in us. He also clothes us. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, I will put the clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. See, the Lord takes us from shame to splendor, not from shame to neutral. He doesn't just take us from debt to zero. He takes us from shame to splendor. He gives us his own righteousness. I mean, how is that possible? Like, does our sin and failure not matter? Like, does it just be like, all right, God's just going to do this for us? What does the angel do with our filthy garments? Ultimately, they're taken off Joshua, and we're going to see that they're put on another Joshua. This is the third and final thing, which is the Messiah. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who, for they are, men who are a sign. Behold, I will give my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You see, another priest is going to come. Another priest named Joshua, Yeshua, the Aramaic of Joshua, and his name is Jesus. And he is going to perfectly love his neighbor, and he's going to perfectly love God, and he's going to take our filthy robes and put it on him, and he's going to give us his clean robes. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Steph Curry... Uh, as you know, the NBA basketball player. He uh, is the same age as me, grew up down the street from me, actually. Um, I didn't actually know him personally, but he did play basketball. Uh, his team came to our high school gym and played basketball, right? Um, and let's just say that he does remember me. Let's just say that he does. And he invites me to come and play for a single game on the Golden State Warriors in a certain, you know, match, okay? Let's say they're playing the Denver Nuggets or whatever. All right, so I get to play. I get the jersey, I get everything, I get out there, I'm ready to play basketball with Steph Curry on the team, right? And I am doing terrible, right? Like, I mean, I'm missing every shot, can't dribble, just throwing up bricks, getting owned in the paint, and Steph Curry's having the game of his life. I mean, just triple-double, like assists, like 50 points, I mean, whatever it is, just having the game of his life. And the game's over, they end up winning, right? And I'm going to the locker room, and I'm just so ashamed of myself. I'm like, gosh, why did I even do this? Why did I think that I could play in the NBA? You know, and then I see the ESPN report. 
who is Matt Trexler, this basketball phenom? Like, he came out of nowhere, like triple doubles, like 40 assists, like 50 points. And like, where was Steph Curry? He didn't even show up. He's the worst basketball player ever. And you're like, wait, what? I don't understand. And you look and you realize that before the game, our jerseys had been switched so that on my back, it said Curry, and on his back, it said Trexler. Now, just go with this, okay? Um, And so he got all the blame for my performance, and I got all the credit for his because our jerseys had been switched. Now, as silly as that illustration is, that's really what happens here. That really is the gospel, is that Jesus actually lives this perfect life. He fully obeys God. He is perfectly clean as the high priest. And what he does is he takes off his perfect garments, his perfect jersey, and he clothes us in that, and he takes our filth. He takes our pain. He takes our sin. He takes our failures upon himself, and he takes the punishment on the cross. He dies as though he had done what we had done, and we get the victory that he gets. He comes out of the grave in resurrection, new life, and he gives it to us because it's not just his victory, it's ours. What is true of him is now true of us as a sheer gift of grace so that when God looks upon you, he doesn't see filth. He sees the beauty of his son in you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus said. Abide in my love. It is not the righteousness that comes by the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith. This is what he has done for you. When these internal accusations come flying at you, you don't deserve God's love. You can tell the devil, my acceptance before God is not dictated by my performance. You don't have to be good enough. You just have to believe that Jesus is good enough. Jesus is cast out. He is forsaken so that you can be clothed in God's righteousness. Now, why does this matter? Is this just a nice idea? If you let this get into your life, it will change everything. When you throw a stone into a river or a lake, it ripples out. And when the gospel drops down into your soul, it will ripple out into every area of your life. Let's look at these two closing images. The first is the stone. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. It's a really weird little passage, but it's very symbolic. Basically, think of a a stone that goes on the front of the turban. This would have been like one of the stones of the high priest. And seven eyes, don't get too caught up into that. Seven is the number of completeness. This is a vision, a lot of imagery. It just means that God's all-seeingness. But on this stone is written something, an inscription that we cannot see. And we don't really know until the end of the book of Revelation what is written on that stone. What is written is the name of Christ on our foreheads. Just as the people were marked by the mark of the beast, so we are marked by the name of Jesus on our foreheads. We belong to him, and nothing can change that. It is set in stone. That this promise and this gospel is yours, and it is not based on your performance. It is based on his Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? This is yours. It is not it does not go up and down on the basis of your feelings. It does not go up and down on the basis of your performance. You don't have to play the game with God. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. No, he loves you. The Messiah loved you and gave himself for you. And it is set in stone. And he has marked you. In fact, your name is engraven on his hands. 
And this should free you to rest. You don't have to continue the anxious hustle and hurry to constantly prove that you're enough. You don't have to pretend and hide behind your failures because Jesus has paid for every last sin and you belong to him. The second and final image is the vine and the fig tree. Verse 10, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's this image of flourishing, of of shalom, of peace, of reconciled relationships. It says it's for your neighbor, which means this gospel is not just for you. It's for the people in your life as well. Ernest Hemingway has this short story called Capital of the World. And in this short story, he tells about this father, the Spanish father, who wants to reconcile with his lost son. And his son has run away to Madrid. And so what he does is he writes an ad in the newspaper and he says, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. So when the father shows up Tuesday at noon, he actually sees a hundred young men who are looking for their father. You know what that, you know what that short story tells me? that our neighbors are starving for grace. People around us are starving for grace. Grace is the number one export of heaven, and it needs to be the number one export of God's people. There are people in our lives that need to hear this. We need to hear this. There are others that need to not just hear it, but experience it. Which means to ask, how do you come off in your relationships? Are you the one who gives grace, or do you always always the great criticizer? Are you playing the role of the accuser? Constantly accusing, constantly criticizing, constantly belittling, always filled with grudges. Or are you giving away the grace that God has given to you? Bob Goff said, we need to to give away God's grace like we're made of it. Are we showing others the grace that God has shown to us? Do you know that this grace is on offer to you? He doesn't give it to you begrudgingly. He does it gladly for anyone who will ask. And you're like, but I don't know if I can feel it. Okay, fine. Ask. I don't always know if I'm believing, but I can at least know if I'm asking. And Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Ask. And I'll close with this. In Ephesians, Paul says that he preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. He preached peace. When did Jesus preach peace? I think he did it from the cross. The cross is his pulpit. And he is preaching peace even today. To you who are far off and to you who are near. He himself is your peace. Rest in him. He is good. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. That you are the prince of peace the one who has come to bring peace. Would you put that peace down deep into our soul, but would you also work that peace out into our life with our relationships, our families, our neighbors? Lord, would you give us grace? Would we drown in that grace, Lord, and we'd be able to overflow in grace and love and mercy and forgiveness to others? Lord, would you do this by your power and by your mercy? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.